Welcome to the McCarthy Report, the podcast where I, Rich Lowry, discuss with Andy McCarthy the latest legal and national security issues. This week, what else? Texas versus the feds. By the way, if you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And please give this podcast an Andy McCarthy, the glowing, indeed gushing five-star reviews they deserve on iTunes. And now, without further ado, I welcome to this very podcast through the miracle of Riverside, none other than Andy McCarthy. Rich, how are you? <laughs> Good. How are you? Um, other than the doom, I'm fine. I, I just yeah. feel like everything, uh, I feel like the, um, well, I feel like um, people throw stuff at me when I say this, but I, I feel like the plan is coming together for Trump. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I wrote a column last night about how I think Rhino is like the stupidest, most outdated insult because the thing that's now Republican in name only is the Republican Party, which is really the Trump Party at this point. Um, right. And I don't understand the Trump Party is smaller than the Republican Party. Um, especially when you account for the one in five Republicans who will never vote for Trump on any, for any reason ever, ever. Um, but the only way the Republicans ever won, and they haven't won a majority in the presidential election since what's it, 1988. Was that the last one? Um, I, I, other than Bush, the son was it? in 2004, 2004, right? right? Just barely. So Bush, the father, and then Bush, the Bush, the son. Um, but like one time in nearly 30 years or whatever it is, they've won the, uh, it's more than 30 years that they've won, uh, the popular vote in the presidential election. And the only way they can do it, I, I was surprised by this. You, you know, the stuff better than I do, but like, it used to be that Republicans out, uh, were outnumbered by Democrats traditionally. That's kind of collapsed over the last number of years, but that's because the parties themselves, it's not because the Republicans have gotten bigger. It's that there's more independence now. Um, mm -hmm. but the only way to win an election is because they're too small to even the Republican party bigger than the Trump party was too small to win elections. You have to reach out to disaffected Democrats and moderates. You can't win with that. It's just math, right? Um, so they knew that's what they had to do. They had to appeal. And of course, to us conservatives, it was always, uh, you know, it's annoying when they do that because they have to pander to things and people that we don't agree with, but that's the only way you can win an election. And then we have Trump who's starting from something that's smaller and his approach is to antagonize the people he needs to rope in to, to win. And I just, I'm, some days I think he's just a crazy person. And then other days I think like maybe he's decided he'd rather be like the, um, uh, you know, the charismatic uh, guy who, who uh, is, is a fan favorite at the local comedy club rather than like the guy who wants to roll up his sleeves and do the hard work of, getting grudging acceptance from people who aren't that crazy about you. I just, I, I, I don't know what's going on there. Yeah. He, he wants to win and, uh, very deeply. It's just, he, he, you know, lacks the discipline to do everything he needs to do that. He'll do something that he needs to do it, 
But you know, I was thinking back this this issue of independence voting in in New Hampshire, and I'm pretty sure uh, at National Review we were very anti McCain. Everyone thinks everyone thinks we're McCain people because we said he was a war hero, and you shouldn't you shouldn't mm-hmm. mock him for his disabilities or for get, for getting captured. Right. But um, we were very anti McCain, right? In 2000, we were waging war against um, McCain to try to help uh, Bush, and I'm sure we complained about uh, independence in in New Hampshire. But it's always, you know, Trump won them in right, 2016. Right. 36% of And bragged about it. And, yeah, of course he bragged about it. And he should. You know, it's not right. a bad thing. And and I don't think Nikki is like there's some fractional candidates in a party who have a deep Bernie Sanders supporters are really into Bernie Sanders. I don't no one's like that with Nikki Haley. So maybe none of this matters and so much stuff's gonna happen, you know, it's it's probably all gonna be forgotten very soon. But but all he has to do is say, Nikki, great race. It's over now. I'm going to Michigan. You, you can go down to South Carolina. That's fine. I'll win South Carolina. Um, anyway, and never mention her again. Right. Just to avoid, at the very least, if he's not you know, upsetting Nikki Haley supporters who aren't inclined to vote for him anyway, that he needs to win. At the, at the very, even if he's not doing that, because they're not truly Nikki, deep Nikki Haley supporters, he's reminding them why they hate him and they can't stand him and they don't like him yeah. for no reason. I know. For no reason, she is not a threat to him. No, Rona McDaniel, who I don't think is um, a famously effective head of the mm-hmm. uh, RNC. I did hear last night some what I regarded as good advice that sh- that she gave, which is that Trump shouldn't even go to South Carolina, shouldn't even campaign down there. He's going to win. It would look better for him to win and not go down there. But he should from day from today on say, you know, this is the national presidential race, and just. Yeah. You know, campaign against Biden. That's what he ought to. He yeah. won't do it, but that's what he ought to do. I mean, yeah, I, I imagine that's exactly what his his team is is telling him. And and he, he's been a little better at, at listening to these people than he has people in the past. But he, he's not listening to them now. <laughs> <laughs> well, not the not the other night. That's for sure. And now we know what he's doing now, Rich. We know he's not listening to them now because he's yeah, supposed absolutely. to be in the witness stand now, as we're right, speaking. There he is. <laughs> So, uh, so let's go. We got a big yeasty one going here yep, yep, that's yep. going to get get bigger rather than smaller, which is this dispute that's been uh, going for a while between Texas and the federal government because Texas wants to enforce the uh, our sovereign borders, uh, and the, the the federal government doesn't. And you had this dispute over barbed wire. Texas has been stringing up to try to stop illegal immigrants from coming in. The cover story is this is impeding border patrol agents from doing their work, which of course is is rank. BS, but you have now this this uh, really fascinating and deep, you know, dispute over what what's the nature of state sovereignty, how how um, how much does uh, the, the federal government rule in this area? So so uh, as is our want, do the uh, do the big thirty thousand foot take, and then we'll dive in. Well, I think you just hit the thirty thousand foot take, which is why this is so profoundly important. I mean, this goes back, Rich, to what we were talking about at National Review ad nauseum back in 2010, 11, 12, uh, the Arizona litigation during the, uh, during the, the Obama-Biden administration. And I wrote a column in 2012 after the Arizona case came down from the Supreme Court called Sovereignty Preempted, which was basically about Justice Scalia's very interesting opinion in that case, where he traces the history. uh, And what he points out is that when 
when the country was founded, and, and by the way, I should say, um, by way of connecting all this up, um, the letter that went out yesterday from Governor Abbott, which said they're, they're going to continue barricading the border regardless of what the Supreme Court says, um, in that letter, Abbott relies on Justice Scalia's opinion in this 2012 Arizona uh, versus U- United States case. So that's why it continues to be so important. But as as was his want, uh, Justice Scalia cut to the heart of what this was about, which is, are the states still sovereign or aren't they? And his point was that it's an ineliminable element, component of sovereignty to be able to exclude from your territory people who don't have a legal right to be there. That without that, you don't have sovereignty. And as he traces the history around the time of the founding, including the writings of Vattel about uh, international law, Vattel was probably the Emmerich, uh, Vattel was probably the greatest um, uh, f- original kind of um, write it all down source of uh, of international yep. law and and fairly. Finally, a Vitale reference in this podcast. It's, Andy. it's about time, don't you think? <laughs> but um, but uh, he was fairly contemporaneous with the with the founding, um, and you know Scalia goes back into all this stuff. And what he says is, at the time of the founding, what was clear in the law was the state's authority to police immigration. What was unclear was the federal government's authority. Um, and he points out, for example, given that that was contemporary at the time of the founding, that was, uh, the way things were, he gives this wonderful example where he lays out what was Obama administration and Obama Biden administration at the time policy, which was if the framers of the constitution had proposed a provision that said the authority to, um, police the borders uh, and the territory within the United States is vested unilaterally in the president. And that basically at the president's whim, the laws could either be enforced or not enforced. He said the delegates at the great convention would have, would have stormed for the exits. Uh, And there would be no United States. There would have been no constitution. Um, And as he also points out, even though this is inconvenient to the federal government, and it's often inconvenient because of foreign policy considerations, other countries and Washington simply have to deal with the fact that this is not like the usual country. It's a confederation of sovereign states. And if you don't have the authority to protect your territory, you're not sovereign. So over time, what happened, mainly because of the Supreme Court, which is, to, to me, uh, you know, mind-boggling, because now today they're saying, we have to keep our hands off this because uh, this, is not our, uh, this is not our bailiwick. This is for the political branches. It was the Supreme Court over the last century and a half that not only derived a, a federal role in immigration and border enforcement out of the fact that because the national government is also sovereign, it has authority to police the borders. 
And inexorably, once the court started with that, uh, as, as happens in many areas over time, the federal government basically pushed the states out of their traditional role. But that doesn't mean the role has disappeared. And the only reason that we haven't had uh, an explosive federalist crisis over this is because the law of the United States clearly, up until the time of Obama, was that the states, the feds, because they do have this role that the courts have found, have the power to preempt the states on matters of border enforcement, at least to a point. Scalia says, you know, uh, this he, he makes this uh, sort of um, classic Scalia argument that, you know, we're not talking here about regulating the size of bubblegum wrappers or even about, you know, whether you can have a nuclear plant in a state. We're talking about something that goes to the core of sovereignty, which is self-defense, the, the ability to keep uh, intruders out. Um, so it, it was not an issue before the court in uh, Arizona versus the United States um, whether Congress could enact a law that eviscerated the state's ability to conduct any self-defense because Congress hadn't done that. Um, but he, he suggests that such a law would be unconstitutional because it would be a, a violation of the arrangement that was the, uh, the foundation for the Constitution. Um, but what kept, the, what kept this working reasonably well for the last two centuries was the idea that as long as the states were acting in a manner that was consistent with federal law that Congress was entitled to impose, then the states could do whatever they wanted to police their territory, and that would be fine. And because U.S. federal statutory law says things like when an illegal alien is found in the United States and apprehended, he is to be detained until the conclusion of his uh, legal proceedings to determine whether he has a right to stay here or not. That is, because federal law allows for a lot of uh, policing against illegal immigration, there was no tension between federal law and the ability of the states to act in their own self-defense. Then along comes Obama and the Obama Justice Department, and we should remember, Rich, at the time, uh, who's the uh, Solicitor General for the Obama Justice Department? It's Elena Kagan, right, who's now on the, on the Supreme Court. But the Obama Justice Department develops this theory that the states are bound not just by federal law, but by federal administration policy about enforcement, so that even if the law says it's illegal for an immigrant to be here, if the Obama-Biden administration decides they're not going to enforce that law, they won't, and the states can't. Mm -hmm. And that was Obama's position, and that's with, Biden's position. So you're clashing with the uh, federal enforcement priorities, supposedly, right? Right. They, so they, they know that you actually... You need to have a corridor in this part of the border to let everyone in. I'm, you know, it's hypothetical because because it's more important to have you know resources elsewhere, and um, you can't have have or, or you know if you or if you block this 
part of the the border. They'll, they'll be going to more dangerous areas. So, so you don't want you, the feds aren't going to do it. And you don't want the states to do it. And the feds know better. You know that that kind of thing, right? And yeah, in theory, would be right. Except yeah, that's exactly right. But the thing is, here's the bait and switch. Here, they say, you know, we're Obama. Of course, was not a left winger. He was a he was a pragmatic centrist, right? Um, he is the uh, the deportation president. Yes, right. And what he would say is, you know, as a practical matter, uh, we have uh, 14 million illegal aliens in the United States, and you couldn't conceivably <laughs> arrest and deport 14 million. So Biden has taken that scintillating logic and and basically said, well, if I, I guess if I let 30 million in, as a practical matter, I can't arrest anyone, right? Um, so we have a situation where in a period of um, – now three years. I guess we're almost. We just passed the an, the third anniversary of the Biden administration, right? Four okay. days ago. So, in a period of three years, he has led into the United States over six million people. Which, to get a read on this, I know we've done this before, but I think that people need to understand how huge this is. This yeah. is like one and a half times the population of Los Angeles, the, f the second yeah. largest city in the United States. Governor Abbott said yesterday it's bigger in population than 33 states in the United yeah. States. Yeah. The number of people he's let in just in three years. And the other thing, Rich, that drives me to distraction is the administration keeps saying the Republicans won't cooperate with us even on giving resources for the border. We need more money for down in the border. And they lead the public to think they want money for border enforcement. But if you give them money, they're not enforcing the border. They're using it to process people to come into the yeah. country. Yeah. And a yeah, lot process of process is my least favorite words. Yeah. But, 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 and because it's such a weasel world word. Mm -hmm. um, and processing now includes this ridiculous Biden app that we've talked about where in order to depress the numbers, and this is like a, when I was in Columbia, um, you know, I think the one book that you had to read in the statistics class was how to lie with statistics. I mean, this is, this mm -hmm. is like classic, right? Um, but to depress the number on the pay on paper of illegals who were coming in, what Biden developed is this fraudulent visa program, which he has no authority to issue. It's up to Congress to, to decide visa conditions. Um, but he says, you know, don't rush the gates. Use my app, make an appointment, and we'll help you illegally come into the country. And that's what, and because they give them this little piece of paper, which is like the Biden visa, we're supposed to believe that these people are no longer illegal aliens. Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on on the the Arizona decision, sometimes I remember things I I wrote a long time ago. So I I sound like a great authority and an expert when I can bring them up and they become relevant again. But I wrote about this a ton. I know you did too. Paid really close attention to that decision. Was really disappointed about it. And then lo and behold, this comes up, and I can't remember anything about it. <laughs> so Scalia dissented, but the the decision was. That this the federal government totally occupies the field. That's the phrase, right? And and and, and who who voted for that? And and, and what was the? Well, so that's the that's the context of it. And Scalia's opinion is actually um, it's partially a dissent and partially a concurrence. And if you remember, there were four different 
provisions of this law. And the court ended up um, sustaining one of them and uh, siding with Obama on the other three. Scalia said that he should they should have sided with the state on all four. Um, but what the the issue basically was even Scalia, and I was um, I was critical of this in the piece I wrote after the because I thought you know like Heather McDonald at the time I thought Scalia's opinion was brilliant until I get to the end and then what he basically says is because these are powers that the the state that that the federal government legitimately has. Um, if they want to preempt state action, um, they're allowed to do that. They just have to be clear about it and they haven't been clear. And I thought that that crashed into what his suggestion was at the beginning, which is that there are certain things the federal government simply can't do because in the arrangement we have, the states are sovereign. So it's not enough in my mind to be clear you know, I don't think if the if the Congress um, were to enact a statute that divested the states of any ability to enforce immigration law, I believe that would be an unconstitutional statute, no matter how clearly they wrote it. But I do think, having reread this decision in the last few days, um, I should have um, cut more slack because Scalia does say in the beginning, even though it's kind of um, compared to the other stuff he wrote here, it's it's more opaque. Um, but he does suggest that there is some limit to what Congress would be able to do because what we're talking here is is about something so basic as as sovereignty. But that was the issue. The his thing was um, if Congress wants to to preempt the states. It has to be clear about it. And what the majority was saying is that you could infer that the feds had blocked the states from doing certain things because of preemption. And Scalia was, le was like, no, 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 that's not how it works. You don't infer something like this. It has to be stated clearly by Congress that we intend to preempt the states from doing X, Y, or Z. So, I think what's interesting about this, Rich, though, is it's now almost 14 years since all of that. And I think this court, and I would include Justice Barrett, we can talk a little bit about that if you want, but I would include Justice Barrett in this. I think that this court would be much more likely to side with Scalia's way of thinking about this than I think Justice Kennedy is the one who wrote um, Arizona versus the U.S. at the time, but I think this is a court that's much more inclined uh, to go in the Scalia direction. Um, I just, I, I also think they're not going to get there until they absolutely have to get there. So why don't we pause right here and we'll get back into Texas versus the feds. And let me do a quick plug for Enterplus Digital Subscription Service at nationalview.com. Your way around our metered paywall. Your way, if you sign up and log in, to see about 90% fewer ads, especially the most obnoxious ads, go away. Your way, if you want to, to comment on articles and blog posts and get invited to exclusive events and calls with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. And most importantly, doesn't cost you a lot, but it's really important to us as a, uh, in a business sense. It's a really important way to support our 
valuable journalism. So all those are compelling, I would think, reasons to sign up for NR Plus. So please do it today, tomorrow, or the day after. So Andy, let's. Uh, I want to get into the question of you know w- when is it right, if ever, to defy a, a Supreme Court ruling, which seems like uh, what we may be getting here. But let's let's go into the the Texas case. So the Fifth Circuit has been considering this, and then it goes up to the. Supreme Court on the question of a, a, a stay from of the feds from uh, blocking the feds from tearing up the wire, and then it's not you know it's it's not a decision obviously it's sort of a shadow docket kind of case. But what what uh, what what happened here? Because I don't think everyone's totally clear about it. Certainly, I'm not as I've just demonstrated. <laughs> well, in October, Rich, um, the federal Texas has a 1,254 mile border with Mexico. And they have been putting barricades up because the federal government won't enforce the laws. Um, And these barriers, as you mentioned before, include this concertina or uh, razor barb wire. Um, And the area in dispute is this like two and a half mile area on the border at Eagle Pass, um, where the feds have been going in and basically tearing up the razor wire and letting immigrants in. And they claim that, as you mentioned before, uh, the razor wire is impeding them from doing their jobs. Uh, Texas counters that they're not doing their jobs anyway. All they're doing is ripping up our wire so they can let more people in. Texas goes to the district court in October. The judge basically agrees with Texas that the Biden administration is not enforcing the law, but the judge doesn't think he has authority to tell the feds that they can't tear up the wire. So that makes Texas appeal. They go to now understand there's still an underlying litigation going on. The, is, the issue is, should the feds be ordered while the case is going on not to touch the wire until we he can make a merits determination about uh, who's in the right here. So the district court refuses to issue the order. The Fifth Circuit on December, I think it was 19th, um, issues the order that Texas is asking for. They have a qualification that if there's a case of medical emergency, the feds can uh, cut the wire if they need to in order to render assistance. But otherwise, they are not allowed to cut the wire. So it, the important thing here, Rich, in terms of uh, people now claiming that Texas, because it's saying it's going to continue putting up the concertina wire, that they're um, that they are defying the Supreme Court. Understand what I just said. The order was imposed on the Department of Homeland Security. Texas hasn't been ordered to do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what the Supreme Court did on Tuesday, two days ago, was it refused to uphold the order that the Fifth Circuit had uh, imposed on the federal government, not allowing them mm-hmm. to to um, cut this wire. The, the court did not tell Texas that they couldn't put up more wire. Now, inferentially, I guess it's fair to say they would have expected that. Um, but technically speaking, for people who are saying Texas is in defiance of Supreme Court mm-hmm. ruling, they're not. The ruling was not imposed on them. It was imposed on the federal government. So, and under so, the, so in theory, the, t- 
the feds can rip it up and then Texas can just put it right back down. Yep. And they can no, the court didn't say faster. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the court can go, the court can go in uh, or the the federal government can go in and say to the Supreme Court, we think they're in defiance of your order and we want you to hold them in contempt or whatever. But I don't think they get much of a hearing on that. I think mm-hmm. what the court would say to them. Um, and I think this is part of the reason, Rich, that the court did what it did. I mean, I, I think they're wrong. I think they should have left that Fifth Circuit order in place. But um, I think part of the reason they did what they did is that the Fifth Circuit, in imposing the order, also expedited the case. So it's going to be heard like I, – I, I can't remember if it's February 2nd or February 8th, but within the next week or two, they're actually going to – you know they're going to hear the case and they're going to decide it. So – the only thing the court did was deal with this order. It didn't make a merits determination on the underlying case. Now, I think the court, as I said, should have left the Fifth Circuit thing uh, in place. Um, I think it was a mistake to do what they did. Uh, to my mind, um, the it's no matter what the facts are, and I know the court doesn't like these, especially Justice Barrett doesn't like these cases that come up on the emergency docket. She's complained about it before. She wants to see cases in as regular order as possible with full briefing and big comprehensive decisions from the lower court. I get all that. Um, but here, no matter what the complex of facts may be, um, the fact is everybody understands the Biden administration is not enforcing the border. Um, the people of Texas are dealing with the, the consequences of that, which are obvious. And it's the court's fault that there is confusion about what Texas's authority is. And I don't think it's an imposition on an administration that's not enforcing the laws anyway uh, to tell them that they can't touch the concertina wire until the court mm-hmm. can get to the bottom of this and make a decision. And, and I uh, can I just say, Rich, one other thing, because there's a uh, you know, there's heartbreak in this, too, which may have something to do with this on on January 12th, I believe it was. Um, there was a woman and two children who who drowned in the Rio Grande, probably because they couldn't um, get by the barriers. And the government of Texas said they have two other people, at least who were hypothermic, uh, who had to be saved. So, they, you know, they're trying to play on people's heartstrings here. But the reason this is a problem is not because Texas is putting up barriers. It's because Biden won't enforce the laws. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is this, does this case, uh, will basically, basically be asking the Supreme court to reconsider what it decided in the Arizona case we were deciding, or are there, there, there fresh issues here such that that Arizona case could, stand or a lot of it could stand and and you you decide on new grounds uh this one you know what i mean i think i think rich the the big broad brush issues in arizona are right back with us again i mean it's the same thing um what's not at issue and where you could easily make a decision in this case and not disturb the arizona case is the arizona case at the end of the day was about those very specific provisions of arizona law Whereas here, what the case is going to come down to is, is Texas entitled to put up barriers that the, um, uh, that the federal government can't touch? Although the other thing I would point out, and this was at issue in the Texas case, 
uh, in the Arizona case. Uh, Texas has also enacted law that allows them to lock up people who don't have an authority, have legal right to be in the country. Um, and that was an issue in the Arizona case. In the Arizona case, it was, you know, where, uh, where the feds have decided not to enforce the immigration laws against certain categories of people. Can the state go ahead, go ahead and, uh, detain them anyway? Uh, because they don't have the legal right to be here, even if they're not in the categories of people that the federal government would deign to prosecute. So in that, in that sense, I think we are back at square one. But we're, I think the, the court this time around is going to have to deal with the profound sovereignty issue of what the right of the state is to protect itself under circumstances where the federal government is derelict in its border security duty. So, so let's say there, there's not that ambiguity that we were just discussing in what the Supreme Court held about uh, um, w- whether the federal government can can go and tear up the the wire, and it's clear the federal government can tear up the wire. And Texas says, no, you're you're not tearing up the wire. One is is Texas just is there any case for Texas doing that, or does it have to just say, all right, the Supreme Court said this, we think it's profoundly wrong. We'll stand down. We'll see you. You know, we'll see you in in court subsequently. Here, Governor Abbott cites um, what Justice Scalia emphatically pointed to in his Arizona opinion, which is Article One, Section Ten of the Constitution, um, which says that um, even if the state does not have the consent of Congress. It can enter into an agreement or compact with other states um, if it is actually invaded or if it is in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. So Scalia derived from that, and Governor Abbott quotes it in his most recent letter, an authority on the part of the state under the Constitution to protect itself from invasion, whether Congress agrees with that or not. Mm -hmm. So- um, are we headed toward a constitutional crisis? We could be. Um, if we are, it's going to be a, a crisis that was created by the federal government. Right. Um, but we're going to fight out right now. We're already fighting it out. They're saying, um, you know, look, we have a situation here where we have foreign people who are not entitled to be the United States in the United States who are coming across the border by the million. And when a sovereign state put up barriers to prevent that illegality from happening, the federal government sued the sovereign state on behalf of the foreign invaders. Mm-hmm. That's where we're at. So a couple other things. This is something also I'm a little f- fuzzy on that I used to be much more up, up on is you know, back in Lincoln's day, they, they took much more seriously the idea that it's not the, the Supreme Court that's just the sole enforcer of the Constitution, right? As a, as a president, exactly. as a congressman, as a statesman, you, you had a responsibility to the Constitution. So the Republicans did not accept the legitimacy of Dred Scott. I mean, they didn't actively defy it. I guess I'm not sure exactly what that would mean, defying it, but that they, they attacked it. They were going to – everything was directed to overturning it. And it seems to me that's that's kind of Roe v. Wade-style defiance of the court. We, we, we think you're – Wrong, profoundly wrong, and guess what? We're, everything is going into reversing uh, this thing, which which we 
did, you know, eventually with Quesaro and, and happened with Dred Scott as well. But I think m- more relevant to what we're maybe talking about here is my understanding, if I remember correctly, is uh, our friend uh, Roger Tani, who, uh, the Dred Scott guy, and, and also habeas corpus uh, a guy who said that Lincoln was in violation of habeas corpus, which I guess technically he, he was there at the outset of the war. And Lincoln just ignores, just ignores his ruling. Yeah. Well, a couple of things about that. First of all, I think if I'm remembering this right, Rich, Tani didn't make that decision as the Supreme Court. Uh, I think that was a ruling he made. I don't know if it was a oh, circuit case or if he- Maryland, Baltimore. Yeah. something. Yeah. I, I, I don't remember what the exactly the procedural posture was. Also, it's not clear that he was correct. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think he's probably correct, but the Constitution doesn't say who can- um, suspend habeas corpus. We infer what the Constitution says is the conditions under which habeas corpus can be withdrawn yeah. uh, and, and, and suspended. It doesn't say who can do it. Tani, I think, reasonably inferred that it must be a power of Congress because it's in Article 1. But it doesn't say that, mm-hmm. you know, clearly. Yeah. And the other thing was, Lincoln suspended habeas corpus. Everybody remembers that. What they forget is that the next time that Congress convened, they they right. sustain what Lincoln had done. Yeah. So, so, but 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 was it was it enough for Lincoln just to say eh, you're wrong? So come and get me, Copper, and and I'll, you know and I'll get on unassailable legal ground as as soon as possible. Here's what I think. I think that Lincoln said pretty much the same thing Jefferson said about the Supreme Court. Which is that, you know, we're not going to be ruled by the judiciary. And what the Federalist Papers say, I think this was Hamilton, um, what they say is that, you know, the court is the least dangerous branch, right? Because it mm-hmm. has, uh, it doesn't have the sword or the purse, it has nothing but judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people were more, um, in, in the first hundred years of the Republic, um, that was more. It was it was more of a contemporary sensibility. Um, the people in the in the at the time of the Civil War, some of them were old enough to you know be uh, around for the founding, right? Or or you know the founding decades, um, and those sensibilities were strong that the that you know the court had a limited role. And I would note, Rich, that there are. You know, from the time of Marbury versus Madison until the next time the go- the Supreme Court tried to invalidate a law of Congress, uh, you know, decades went by. So the Supreme Court was much more likely to stay in what was perceived to be its lane yeah. back at that time. Um, I think, you know, then you flash forward to was it uh, Nancy Pelosi during the Supreme Court during the Obama years when. The Supreme Court decides something. She says, it's like it came down from Mount Sinai, you know. So um, it's very different. Or I guess she said the voice of God had spoken. It's some mm-hmm. preposterous thing. But I think that, um, you know, we're more of a litigious society now. We're culturally very different. Um, I still think, though, I, I, this is my hobby horse, I know. But when you get down to brass tacks, um, we're much. We like to think of ourselves as a rule of law society. We're really a body politic, um, and I always believe, even though I love the law and I've spent my life in the law, that in the end, political considerations end up being more important than legal considerations. Mm-hmm. 
And depending on what the crisis is and how crazy what a court does is, um, I think the Supreme Court gets ignored from time to time. And in fact, Jeffrey Stone wrote a book about the First Amendment in wartime called Perilous Times. He makes this point. Uh, Rehnquist um, wrote a book called All the Laws But One about habeas corpus and, and Lincoln, um, which uh, makes the same point. The trajectory of this is the federal government will do something in the time of war or crisis. Um, and generally speaking, what happens is it either defies the Supreme Court or it puts the Supreme Court in a very tough position given what whatever its precedents are at, up to that point. And what tends to happen is that after the crisis is over, the court will rule that what the government did was not permissible. And that's cold comfort to people whose rights were arguably violated, but it's it creates a norm for future action so that over time things, uh, depending on your perspective, um, you know, the law becomes stronger. And I do think that's, you know, look, they didn't, you know, they obviously Korematsu is years after the Japanese internment, right? Um, Bush versus uh uh, was it, what was the um, the cases that begin in two thousand four through two thousand six about the war on terror? They don't happen right after nine eleven, right? They happen three, four, five years later. So I I, I think there's a lot to that Humdi, theory. Hamdi, Hamdi, right? Yeah, and Russell. So, um, and, you, you, yeah. the, the the way I would think about it is, uh, I, and we've done really terrible things in in wartime, not, not nearly as terrible as every other society has has done. Uh, but you obviously wouldn't. Uh, defend them. But uh, with Lincoln and habeas corpus, again, I'm a little fuzzy, but I, th I think the issue was he needed to get troops from the North into Washington to defend the nation's right. capital against a no kidding insurrection. And right. there were riots in Baltimore and there was a question of whether they could get through. So, so he had to, he had to get them through. And that's just, even if he, if uh, Tani was right and he was wrong, Lincoln needed to do that. He had to do it. You know, th right. that was truly a crisis of the regime, so to speak. And, you know, is, is one of the few circumstances, I think, where you can really, uh, honest to goodness, say, okay, you had to violate. There's a, there's a conflict between strict adherence to the Constitution and the survival of the Constitutional Republic. So you, you got to go survival, right? Well, but, but this goes to exactly what we've been talking about all along here, which is things are really bad in Texas. Mm -hmm. You know, if you make a, if you make a, it, it seems un-American to have a situation where the most important decisions that affect people's lives are made by people 1,500 miles away who aren't dealing with the, the mm -hmm. consequences of it. And they're telling them, we're not going to protect you, and you can't protect yourself. That's not sustainable. So let me uh, th let me push you on, on something. So this, this is uh, – we, we've both written a lot about immigration and uh, agree on everything. Um, but I, I never use the word invasion uh, because it, it strikes me as a little bit like the way the left calls uh, January 6th an insurrection. It's like a metaphorical insurrection, right? You know, if, if that was an insurrection, you know, it was an insurrection like uh, a mob showing up at Fort Sumter rather than Fort Sumter getting bombed and, and you know, taken by the Confederacy that had a, a, a rival government and set up and, and all the rest of it. And it just seems to me like um, I, I don't know how much it will matter 
in the jurisprudence here, whether this is considered um, like a technical invasion. But I always think of that as a military uh, thing. But um, you, you, you're you're comfortable with with that 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 word and that concept. Well, I, I guess the thing is, and I've wrestled with this too. But you know, first of all, the the word does have constitutional consequence. And right now that mm-hmm. Article 1, Section 10 has been invoked, it matters whether this is, as a matter of fact, it's an invasion mm-hmm. or not. Um, although there's an, I, I don't have the provision in front of me again now, but it, you know, it, it also says like there's a, you know, there's a, a danger that uh, you can't have, have delay. So it can, it doesn't have to rise to an, to an invasion uh, necessarily. But the fact is, Rich, you know, if an army of 10,000 tried to come across the Mexican border um, w- and it was armed, we would regard that as an invasion. What we're right. dealing with is an unarmed group of 6 million and counting coming mm-hmm. across the border. Are they not invaders because they're not armed? Mm-hmm. If, the, if the result is the same, that they come across your border, they defy your laws, and now they've created a situation where the law enforcement, education, healthcare, and social services budgets of the federal government, the state governments, and the municipal governments are overwhelmed by what's happening. Mm-hmm. Is does it really matter that much that they weren't armed when they came in? If that's the consequence of it, yeah. So the way uh, I just sort of thinking about this, I've been reading a lot about Roman history lately, and the Goths, and you know, other other so called barbarians. Go, go into the the Roman Empire, and there's usually an, an armed armed element, but it was also a movement of people. Now there's a dispute about how you know how big the movements of people are and whatnot. But they they came in because they were pushed from other barbarians fr- from the east. And what do they want? I mean, they basically wanted jobs, right? <laughs> they wanted to live right. there. They wanted to be yep. so. We, we would we would describe that as a barbarian invasion, right? So um, you know by by that kind of standards, this is. This is an invasion, but it seems it seems quite distinct to me from a, a military invasion because you know they're yeah, not coming well, here to no. shoot people. They're not coming here to take over our government or to take territory. They're coming here to go to the Roosevelt Hotel uh, in in New York and City and work illegally. Well, look, I think that's probably overwhelmingly right. But when the number gets to be six million, Rich, which is why they talk, I think, so much about the fentanyl and the, mm-hmm. you know, and the Mexican cartels and the like, when you're dealing with six million people, they don't all have the same reason for coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some of those are, you know, gangbangers. Some of them are, you know, potentially terrorists. Um, there's a lot of drugs coming across the border. There's a lot of human trafficking. So I think overwhelmingly, yes, the reason people come to America is why is why we would try to come to America if we weren't lucky enough to be born here, right? right. But that doesn't mean that everybody. It, number one, it doesn't mean that everybody's got the same motivation, and number two, it doesn't mean uh, you know, as Trump says, uh, here I go quoting Trump, but you know he's right on this one. If you don't have borders, you don't have a country. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, obviously the case. So related to immigration, but. Uh, separate. Uh, let's let's go go up to to Washington D.C. You have this negotiation going on between the White House and a, a group of senators over a a border deal. We don't we don't have it uh, formally announced, but we we keep on getting uh, leaks and I- indications of what it might be. And you are underwhelmed. 
Yeah, well, it, I think it's a catastrophe for the country if they agree to it. It's basically what they're trying to do is freeze or pressure the House to um, to stand down on its insistence that we have real border security. Um, what they would agree to is more border funding, which, as we discussed a few minutes ago, is is just uh, you know it's a red herring because. You know, Biden doesn't take the money to enforce the border. He takes the money to, as they put it, process more people into the country. So I don't believe, you know, I wouldn't give them a dime of more funding unless I had very strict instructions that I could enforce about how the money was going to be used. Uh, But the second thing is the law of the United States emphatically says people who come here and are apprehended are to be detained. So what the Republicans and the uh, in the Senate and the Democrats and Biden are apparently negotiating is how many they're going to let in every day. And the Democrats want somewhere between five and seven thousand a day before they would trigger an exclusion, which means you can close the border. You don't have to let any more in. The Republicans are saying we think it should be three thousand. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it should be zero. That's what the law says. Why would you do anything that undermines the law? And the other thing I would just point out about this deal, Rich, is what they're saying is there's a trigger. Put that aside. They're saying once the trigger hits, you can close the border, which means it's legal to close the border and it's possible and it's doable. So why is the number have to be in the thousands? Why couldn't it be like, oh, I don't know, zero, since that's what the law says. Um, and when I raised this with a few people, I've talked to about this on the Hill on the sort of squishy Republican side, they say, well, you don't understand if we don't do this, then it'll be 10,000 a day. And I'm like, it's going to be 10,000 a day. It's just going to be, you're going to aid and abet it to get to 10,000 a day by doing this. I mean, yeah, I, so I just I'm think a, this is nuts. I'm totally squishing out. Uh, on you today, Andy. So I, I agree with you on the merits of of, of the deal. <clears throat> um, but I was talking to a very shrewd border hawk who is is actually more hawkish than us, <laughs> if you can believe it, and and is is not anti-Trump uh, at all. And right. he had a very interesting take on this because um, I was asking him uh, of the politics of it. Because obviously, you know, you don't as a Republican, you don't want to seem like you've taken some ownership of what ha- what's happening at the border when it's a uh, it's a, a disgrace and and a dereliction and profoundly wrong at at every level. And there's also the just the the presidential politics in 1996. Not that Bob Bill was going to beat Bill Clinton, but the best issue he had, or one of the best issues he had against Bill Clinton, was welfare reform. And lo and behold, congressional Republicans cut a deal for Bill Clinton to sign on to welfare reform, and boom, that issue goes away. So I was asking about this, and he's like, "No, Rich, you're, you're looking at it." totally the wrong way in any authorities they give him, and they're not really giving him many authorities here. He's probably not going to use cause he's not interested in, in ha- having the, uh, in controlling the border. And those authorities will be there for, for uh, a Republican to pick up immediately and actually use, you know, which, which Trump, Trump would do. And, um, and he can't, you know, if Biden wants an open border, he can't really, there's not any way to, to stop him. And in, in anything good that happens at the margins, it's not as though people are going to think, Biden's great at the border. It's going to be more like Jimmy Carter, you know, after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, there's an invasion. Um, the, the Jimmy Carter turned around on defense. He's like, I was wrong about the Soviets. I, I was too trustful. We got to spend more defense. And that didn't hurt Reagan. It helped Reagan because it's sort of validating um, 
Reagan's case. So, so this guy was making the case that uh, um, I- anything good in this deal or, or any uh, re- re-implementation of Trump policies would actually show, well, Biden's been bad and, and we, need, we actually need more Trump. We need the full Trump. But I don't know how, you, uh, how, how those arguments strike you. Well, I think it, that would be a good argument for the funding, you know, because if you put more funding in and then we got a new administration where they actually used it to, right. to secure the border, that would be a good thing. But what, where it loses me, Rich, is that I, I might be fine with this if you were writing on a clean slate, but how could you improve on the law we have now? Mm-hmm. The law we have now is that they're supposed to be detained. Right. right. You know, I mean, you <laughs> want to tell me that they're going to, you know, it, I, I just don't see how it's an improvement. Well, this time I you mean, really mean it. you have state after state. This is what I this is what drives me nuts about the Republicans. The Democrats never do this. They're all they all manage to get everybody on the same page. But you have Republican states going to the courts and actually making some headway by making this argument that Biden is derelict in his duty because the law requires these people to be detained and he's not detaining them. Mm-hmm. And then the Republicans are going to pull the rug out from under them by saying it's okay to let 3,000 a day in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, if that's their number, it won't be 3,000, right? It'll be 5,000. 5,000 is the number I read today. Um, and I would just point out that when Jay Johnson was Obama's, uh, Jay Johnson, who I know from the, from the Southern district, he's a great guy, Rich, by the way. <laughs> um, but, um, he, when he was the Homeland Security Secretary, he said that he would look at the number every day of people coming in and that if it was over a thousand, he knew he was going to have a terrible day mm-hmm. because a thousand a day is crisis level. The resources of the federal government and the state governments are not up to coping with 1,000 a day, which is 365,000 a year. We're talking about a situation where Republicans are thinking about agreeing to three times a crisis, and then they'll finally agree to five times a crisis. Three times, three thousand a day is one point one million a year. Five thousand a day is close to two million a year, which is about what Biden has done up till this point. So, wh- yeah. how is that helpful? Yeah. All right. So let's uh, almost lightning round style hit, hit some of the other. Uh, lawfare stories out there. There's a lot cooking. Let's go. We haven't talked, I think, enough about Fannie Willis. So let, let's let's go to to that one. So she she was going to, I guess, she was subpoenaed to testify in this uh, in this divorce case um, of her special counsel with whom she was having an affair. Uh, wh- where does that stand? And and it, is she in trouble such that the, the underlying case? could collapse or be significantly delayed. I, I know you're kind of, you're, you're, you, you think the thing is going to or should collapse regardless, but how does this play into it? Well, I think if I'm Fannie Willis, much more concerned am I than about the Trump case uh, about my potential liability. I mean, if these, if these allegations are true, then she has potential you know, state and federal criminal liability under the fraud statutes. And under um, uh, the delightfully enumerated uh, section six 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 of yeah, the right. um, of the federal penal code, which which prohibits embezzlement, if you're you know in a 
if you're working, if you're a state official who's working in an entity that gets, you know, some very modest amount of government funding, which I'm sure a district attorney's office in Atlanta, which has a $31 million budget, is getting a lot more federal money than that. Um, you know, if you, the allegation against her is that she misrepresented, at least in part, why she needed the money. She said that she needed money from the county in order to address the COVID backlog. And then she diverted uh, close to a million dollars of it to pay this guy who evidently is not qualified f- to be a special counsel in a RICO case. He never even uh, apparently tried a criminal case. Um, uh, and then she derives benefit from it by tootling around, you know, on uh, planes and cruise ships and the like. Uh, and there may be some other false statements that there have been allegations that there have been false statements made to the state authorities. I think she has, you know, quite apart from the Trump litigation, she's got problems. You know, she, she's got to have to consider how her testimony could be used against her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But she's now under investigation um, by the court. She's under investigation by the Republican controlled uh, legislature in the state of Georgia. Uh, I'm certain that, you know, Jim Jordan, if he hasn't already, any second now is going to be, you know, heating up the subpoena machine. Um, So I think she's got a lot of, she's potentially got, you know, criminal liability of her own to worry about. How it affects the case, you know, it could result in her being uh, disqualified from it. She's already been disqualified from prosecuting one defendant. Whether the case has to be dismissed I don't think so, Rich, but you know, like what I've said all along is I think the RICO framework is ri- ridiculous, but she could easily cut this into, you know, smaller cases that that probably could have stood on their own. And she mm-hmm. has gotten four guilty pleas, like the guilty pleas to nonsense, but the, you know, she has gotten them. So it's not like there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. I don't think the case is going to collapse, but I think she's got big problems. Yeah. So we've talked to about the the delays in the the, the January six case, um, well, why don't we hit those and then the, then we'll hit how uh, Alvin Bragg might be hopscotching uh, uh, J- J- Jack Smith and, and going first. So, w- what's your current state of thinking on w- when, if the January six case could could get underway? I just don't see it going um, until at least the middle of July. The thing I think I've been wrong about, Rich, yeah. is I, I I think that up until now, I've always thought that there was some period in the election cycle leading up to Election Day in November where it would just be too unseemly to start a two to three month mm-hmm. trial. Yeah. And I no longer convinced that I'm right about that. I think that these guys have burnt every single norm why in the world I would think that they would honor the one that says that we shouldn't do anything too close to election day because we don't mm-hmm. want to be in a position of influence in the election. When I when I sort of um, um, checked my premises and beat on myself a little bit, I said, you know, they've torched so many other things here. Why would they honor that? Which isn't even a written rule, right? It's just unwritten guidance. Um, so, so I'm you, not sure you, they wouldn't start a trial in August. So sorry to interrupt, but you, you could get if if you yeah if you start mid July August. You're into October, almost certainly, right? That's if things go on schedule. You know, my view, Rich, I've been in, um, I've been in a nine-month trial and a seventeen-month trial, and my view of it 
from hard experience is that when prosecutors, if it gets beyond, you know, the judge asks you how long is the case going to take. If they if they say anything beyond four to six weeks, they have no idea how long it's going to take. Yeah, because you don't know what what problems you're going to have and you don't know what defenses are going to be raised and you don't know what juror is going to be sick. You know, like we may be heading next week into the third week of the four day E. Jean Carroll trial. Right. You know, so things happen. Yeah, I imagine it's like a lot of things in life. Like you know, so, someone tells you you're gonna renovate, they'll renovate your kitchen in three months. You know, it, you know, it's definitely not gonna happen in three months. You don't know what the time <laughs> is gonna be. But it's definitely right. not gonna be three months. So this would put put Bragg, which we sort of discounted, right? Because we we thought he, he would have to wait, and it's a ridiculous case. So so this this could put him at the front of the line, which I mean raises the potential. You know, it's a New York jury, but it's it's a, a, a preposterous case that the the first one out of the gate Trump could get acquitted or at least the prosecutor could fail. Yeah, I think it's kind of a no lose I mean, it's easy for me to say, right? I'm not on trial. But I but I'm not I think it's kind of a no lose for Trump in the sense that um it's a case he has a chance to beat if he gets a fair jury and a fair judge because it's a preposterous case. I think it's a case that you know, I think I made a pretty good um statute of limitations argument on this until I read Dan's and then I was sort of embarrassed I had brought it up because his was like scintillating as usual. Um, but I don't, I really, I don't see how this case survives to even get to trial um, because if it's misdemeanors, which I think is what it is, that's a two year statute of limitations and it's already time barred. The way that he inflated this into a felony is in order to get the the five-year statute of limitations is is uh, preposterous. Um, I've always thought there was a chance this case wouldn't get to trial because it would be dismissed on papers before trial, you know, on on motions. Uh, but if it goes, I can't believe the Democrats really want to start with this one mm-hmm. because he could beat it. And if he beats it, that's going to discredit everything they've done. It's going to – I mean, that'll turbocharge him mm-hmm. if, he, if he beats this case. I just can't believe they want to – Start with it. And the reason I thought that it was kind of um, on the shelf is just as a practical matter, it's hard like to schedule something like this on a, on the fly. You know, if everybody thinks all along that the federal case is going on March 4th, and then all of a sudden you have to tell everyone, well, no, that's not going, but we're, but strap in for a case in New York on March 25th. You know, you have to get the lawyers have to clear their calendar and you have a defendant who happens to be running for president and you know uh it's not easy logistically to pull that off but i guess they're going to try yeah so if, if that case goes first and it blows up it'll be if nothing else absolutely hilarious so that's all the time we have this podcast has been produced by the incomparable sarah shitty thanks everyone for listening and thank you andy mccarthy thanks rich